Joshua chapter 15. Now listen, Christians. Going to need your help today. Going to need you to pay very careful attention to the Word of God. Because we're going to do something that has never been done in the history of reality. It's never even been fathomed until this week. It was never thought possible by anybody that teaches the Bible at a reality church. We are going to cover seven chapters of the Word of God this morning. Now, I know that terror has set into some of your hearts. But I have limited myself on time. I now have 59 minutes and 17 seconds left. So be quiet. Let's pray and get into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word in Joshua has been glorious for us. Lord, you have trained our hands for battle. You've taught us about victorious Christian living. Your, Lord, your word, Lord, has been a fire and a hammer in our lives. Just breaking up fallow ground and old rocky hearts and just burning out impurities and setting us ablaze. It's been wonderful. And now we're at this really neat portion of the Word of God that is tremendous in the history of your people, Israel, and it's a beautiful testimony to your faithfulness and your goodness. And so, Lord, we pray that as we've opened our Bibles, you'd open our hearts and that you'd speak to us in a profound way. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to rebuke us, to correct us, to teach us, to train us for righteousness. And Holy Spirit, we would ask together that you would please anoint me to teach your Word, to rightly divide it, to communicate it clearly. We don't want my insight. We want the very word of God. We want the wisdom of God for our lives. So Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Make this a very fruitful time in these seven chapters. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been speaking about the last couple of weeks, we have the section of scripture before us where Israel is receiving their inheritance in the land of Canaan. And it's a momentous time in the historical uh, view of the life of Israel. Remember, previously they had been in slavery for some 400 years. And after that, they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. And after that, they had seven years of warfare. And now the culmination of these things is coming to pass. And the Lord has been faithful to them through it all. Faithful in their years of slavery. Faithful in their years of wandering. Faithful in their years of warfare. And now they're going to receive their inheritance from the Lord. And they get to settle down. And they're exchanging wandering for stability. They're exchanging warfare for peace. And they're going to get to raise their families and settle the land. Now, for you and I, chapters 15 through 21 sometimes make for some tedious reading. We'll be honest about that. It's the Word of God and it's wonderful, but we're not wonderful. And we don't know all these place names. There's hundreds of cities listed here and hundreds of place names. We don't know them all. We can't pronounce most of them. And so sometimes for us, you know, it's a little hard to get through. But I encourage you to read every single word because every single word is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And I've read every word prior to today. I hope you have in your one year of Bible reading. We won't read every word this morning of seven chapters. Just can't do it but we'll explain to you with a broad stroke what's happening, and then we'll narrow in from every chapter on a couple key insights that will help us to live for Jesus Christ. So here in chapter 15, the first tribe to receive an inheritance on the west side of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan proper, was the tribe of Judah. 
And in chapter 15, we have their boundaries described and the cities that they inherited described. Again, we won't read them, but there's a map behind me. And on that map, you can see the boundaries that went to the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe of Judah was the largest of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they received the largest inheritance from the Lord. And they had some incredibly fertile land in their inheritance. Do you remember in Numbers 13 when the spies went into the land to spy it out? And remember, they went into the valley of Eshcol, and they came out with those giant grapes so big they had to carry them on a stick between two guys? Well, they got those grapes from the land that would in the future be the land of Judah. So they got some wonderful land. They got the largest portion of land. But they also found themselves surrounded by some of the most tenacious enemies of Israel. And those who were still dwelling in the land, yet to be expelled from the land, and would try desperately to hold on to their ground. And so accordingly, God gave Judah some great leaders. And currently at this moment in history in the book of Joshua, Caleb was their leader. And we learned about Caleb last week. He was awesome. He was wonderful. And David would be one of the future leaders of Judah. And it just doesn't get much better than David except for the Messiah. The Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. The Bible prophesied that he would in Genesis 49. And then it tells us that he did in Matthew 1, Matthew 3, and in Luke chapter 3. And so in chapter 15, we have the boundaries in the cities that Judah inherited. You can see it there pictured for you on the map, but I want to narrow in on verse 63. Verse 63 of chapter 15 says, Now as for the Jebusites, okay, those one of the Canaanite uh, groups there, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. We've talked about this before. You know, God gave them the land. In Joshua chapter 1, he said, I'm giving you the land. Past tense, it was already done. In the heart, the mind, the work, in the economy of God, it was already accomplished. All that they had to do was lay hold of it by faith. But ownership and possession are two different things. They already owned it because God gave it to them. But they had to now possess it. And we're told here that they failed to possess Jerusalem entirely. They did not drive out the Jebusites. The Lord said that they were to drive out everyone. Now it says there that they could not. But the reason that they could not is because they would not. Because really they could have. Because the Lord already gave them the land. And the Lord told them to go and possess the land. And God always enables us to do that which he commands us to do. Amen? God's commandments are his enablements. If God tells you to do this, then he will give you the power by the person of the Holy Spirit to do that very thing. And when he told them to possess the land, he gave them every resource and every bit of power that they needed to do so. So really, they could not drive out the Jebusites because they would not. It wasn't an issue of a lack of strength. It was an issue of a lack of faith. And there are these little areas in our lives, these little Jebusites, the, these little things that remain in our lives that ought not to be. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us victory over those things on the cross. And he has set us free from the power of sin. And so now we just have to possess all the fullness of the cross in our lives and all the promises of Jesus Christ. And we do so by faith. We have all the resources that we need. But sometimes we cannot seem to get free from something because we will not endeavor to do so. We just don't deal with that area. Perhaps it's a little pet sin and we just really like it. 
Or it's a secret sin and we just think it's no big deal. Whenever Israel failed to do what the Lord told them to do, it always got them in trouble. And nothing's changed. We'll see that in the next chapter as well. So that's chapter 15. Chapter 16... The tribe of Joseph was the next to get their allotment of land. And you'll remember that the tribe of Joseph was divided into two tribes after his son's namesakes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh together make up uh, the Josephites or the tribe of Joseph. Now Ephraim's borders and cities are listed here in Joshua chapter 16. And we have it up for you on the map. And they also had some of the most fertile land in all of Canaan. But they too disobeyed the Lord in some very important details. Verse 10. Verse 10 of Joshua 16 says, But they, Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. Now, there's a little bit of insight here. The reason that they didn't drive out the Canaanites from this region is because they thought that it would be beneficial to put them to work. Why drive out these resources, they said. According to our wisdom, why not rather put these people to work for us? And we know that they probably put them under taxation too. So why not put them to work for us? Why not tax them and then prosper even more in the land? Why not? Makes perfect sense. I'll tell you why not. Because God said don't. And the word of God says to you and I in Proverbs chapter 3, do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he will make your path straight. According to their understanding, that was a really good business move. It made all the sense in the world. The only folly was God told them not to do it, but rather to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Don't lean on your own understanding because, you see, your understanding is finite. It's incomplete. It's corrupted by fallen humanity. But the Lord's wisdom is infinite. It's perfect. It's pure and it's undefiled and it is altogether righteous. Don't lean on your own understanding, but rather acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Meaning this, what I'm about to do, Lord, how do you feel about it? Lord, what I'm about to do, what do you think about it? Just talk to a young brother after the last service. And I had spoken something from the pulpit a few weeks ago and it was pretty clear to him that something he was doing was something that I didn't agree with, but really it was my perspective on the Word of God. And he came to me and said, you know, I, I, I heard what you said and I, I understand, but I just don't feel convicted about it. And no sooner, it was so beautiful of the Lord, no sooner did the words leave his mouth, I just don't feel convicted, then he went, but it's not about how I feel. It's about how the Lord feels about it, huh? I said, yes, mijo. (laughs) It's not about how we feel or something. It's about how the Lord feels about it, because you know, we're messed up. The heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit, Jeremiah 17 says. Don't lean on your own understanding, it's perverted. But rather, in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord. Lord, what do you think about what I'm about to do? How do you feel about what does your word have to say about it? And then do that thing. They disobeyed the Lord here, not for lack of faith, but for personal gain. That's a toughie. That resonates with me. They just said, no, Lord, we know what you said, but there's much for us to gain personally from this. Bible Knowledge Commentary comments on this and says, 
motivated by a materialistic attitude, they chose to put the Canaanites and Gezer under tribute to gain additional wealth. That proved to be a fatal mistake, for in later centuries, in the time of the judges, the arrangement was reversed as the Canaanites rose up and enslaved the Israelites. In addition to the historical lesson, there is a spiritual principle here. It is all too easy for a believer to tolerate and excuse some pet sin only to wake up someday to the grim realization that it has risen up to possess and drive him to spiritual defeat. It pays to deal with sin decisively and harshly. It really does. I've been on both sides of it, man. It really does. And you know, the Lord told them very clearly what they were to do. Why don't you turn back a couple books to Numbers 35? How about Numbers 33? Turn back a couple books to Numbers 33. If you go back toward the beginning of the Bible, you'll pass Deuteronomy, you'll get to Numbers, Numbers 33. A couple verses here where the Lord had already told them what they should have done and why they should have done it. God always has good reasons behind what he tells us to do. Numbers 33, starting in verse 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And I shall, and you, excuse me, shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. Now verse 55, please. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. Wow. Gnarly words from the Lord. But he told them exactly what to do with minutia, with details. He told them why they were to do it and what the consequences would be if they didn't do it. Now the New Testament equivalent for you and I is found where it says, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. But sow to the spirit, you're going to reap of the spirit. God will not be mocked. Secret sins will be exposed. Our sin will find us out. And the reason that the Lord wants us to be free from these things is because they're detrimental to our well-being. And we hear that and we agree with it intellectually, even spiritually, but in our wicked hearts, we harbor those things still. And we don't really believe that it's going to be bad for us. For other people, oh, oh, it's always going to get them. Oh, it's going to get you. The Israelites, oh, it got them bad. But for me, I'm in control. I can take care of it. I can handle it. The word of God says, don't mock God with such an attitude. You will reap what you sow. Now, in the end, God is wonderfully merciful to you and I. And the eternal consequences of our sin has been removed by the cross of Jesus Christ for those who receive his forgiveness by asking and repenting. But there are temporal consequences to our rebellious decisions. And Israel found that out in the most profound way when their children departed from the Lord because they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Let's go back now to chapter 17 of Joshua. 
In chapter 17 now of Joshua, we have Manasseh once again. And there's been much said about Manasseh, and we're going to visit them again, again next week. But you'll remember that they're half of the tribe of Joseph, the half-tribe of Manasseh. They're the tribe that settled on the wrong side of God's promises. But they did have an inheritance that overlapped into the land of Canaan, interestingly enough. And the details of that are given to us in chapter 17 and outlined on the map behind me. But I want us to look now at verses 12 and 13 along the same lines of what we've already looked at in the previous chapters. This keeps coming up over and over again. Chapter 17, verse 12. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And it came about when the sons of Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Same story, different people, same story. This is so common to humanity that we often stop short of obeying the Lord fully. And I'm I'm reminded of this horrible truth that 99% obedience is not obedience. King Saul was reminded of that in 1 Samuel 15 when he was told to destroy the Amalekites and all of their stuff. And in his own wisdom, he said, okay, we'll destroy the Amalekites, but we want to keep some of the livestock because that's valuable for us. And you know what? We'll sacrifice some of it to the Lord. How about that? The Lord said to destroy it, but no, it seems good to us to take some of it and give it to the Lord. Prophet Samuel comes walking into town after the battle of the Amalekites and says, Saul, why didn't you not obey God? Why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul goes, I did obey the Lord. He said, no, you didn't. I hear the sounds of the animals. Oh, the animals. What? We took care of all the people and most of the stuff, just a little bit of livestock. I pretty much mostly obeyed the Lord. (laughs) Samuel said, that is not obedience. And because of what you have done, the kingdom will be ripped from your hands. And a king was dethroned for obeying 99%. God is teaching us in those lessons that he's very serious about his commands because he's very serious about our well-being and about his holiness. And so the sons of Manasseh didn't drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites persisted in the land. Now don't be surprised about that. The enemy is always going to seek to persist in the landscape of your life. Because he's been dethroned from your life by King Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. You're no longer under the power of the enemy. The power structure of sin has been broken. Just as the power structure of the Canaanite kings was broken in Canaan, the power structure of sin in your lives has been broken in that the enemy has been defeated. But he loves to persist and he wants to try to establish some strongholds in your life. Now don't be surprised when he persists. The enemy persisted and so Manasseh failed in driving them out. But what do you do when the enemy persists? You resist. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise of scripture. It's not an if, it's a when. You resist the devil. Stand firm, that means. Stand firm on the promises of God. Stand firm in the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Maintain your course. Hold the line. Continue in obedience. Stay the course. Resist the temptations of the enemy. And the promise of the Word of God is that He will flee from you. 
He's going to persist for a little while because he is tenacious. He's the devil. He's tenacious. But as you resist, you will experience the fullness of the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, not only do we resist, but we also persist. And we persist in prayer. The enemy tries to persist in the landscape of our lives, but we persist in prayer. Jesus taught us in the Gospels that we are to pray with importunity. It's an old King James word, importunity. It means to insist with persistence. To come before the throne of grace and say, God, this is what is needed. And to come before the throne of grace again and say, God, this is what is needed. And to come before the throne of grace persistently as a widow did and ask the Lord for that which we have need of. We are called into warfare in the issue of prayer. And war requires some tenacity. Don't go into war if you're not willing to be tenacious. And when you jump into prayer, you are jumping into the battle for the souls for men and women. When you don't pray, you're sitting on the sideline and you're a bench-warming Christian and that's what you are. You start to pray and you get yourself in the game and you better be ready for the game. You better, ready, better be ready to do some battle and have some tenacity by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to persist in prayer. Because the enemy tries to persist in the landscape of our lives, but it's not his. It's not his. And we have everything that we need to drive him out by resisting, standing firm against the schemes of the enemy and persisting in prayer. Now, verse 14 is interesting. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance? Since I'm a numerous people whom the Lord God has blessed. And Joshua said to them, if you're such a numerous people, then go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And the sons of Joseph said, but the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshan and its town and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, you are a numerous people and you have great power. You're not going to have only one lot, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its furthest borders, it's going to be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Now, this is an interesting interplay here. The sons of Joseph come to Joshua and say, we're not satisfied, we want more. We're not satisfied, we want more. And Joshua says, you want more? Take it. Go ahead and get more. Go up into the hill country, clear the land. Oh, but it's hard up in the hill country. And then down in the valley, the Canaanites with their iron chariots and the forests and this and that, they just couldn't be satisfied. You know people like that? No matter what, they can't be satisfied. Oh, but this, oh, but that. And they're just never quite happy. You know, they just weren't satisfied with what they have. But this is interesting now. They come to Joshua and they say, we want more. And Joshua, I believe not erring here, says, awesome, take more. You want more of what God has for you? It's yours for the taking. Take more. All you got to do is go up there and clear the land. All you got to do is take care of the Canaanites. No problem. You want more? Take more. And listen, I believe that for you and I, there is an endless supply of blessing in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that when we come to the Lord and say, I want more, the Lord says, you want more? Take it. It's yours to take. 
Now, sometimes there's going to be some woods that need to be cleared. There's going to be some hindrances to our receiving blessings in the landscape of our spiritual life. You've got to go and clear the woods. Anything that would stand between you and the blessings of God and the person of Jesus Christ, go and clear it out. What did he say to uh, Ephraim? He said, you have strength. Go do it. You want more? Go take it. Listen. You want more in your Christian life? Take it. Every promise of God is yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. Every promise of God is yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. During our prayer meeting this morning, we have a prayer meeting every Sunday morning at 7.30. We pray for you guys, Sunday services. You ought to come sometime and pray. It's really cool. But during this morning, Brother Mike was here praying and he prayed, Lord, we ask that today you would totally satisfy us with your presence, but make us incredibly hungry for more. That is right on. That is absolutely right on. A.W. Tozer has a prayer in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God, which I recommend to every single one of you. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, perhaps my favorite modern author. And he says in his prayer on page 20 of that book, God, you have both satisfied me and made me hungry and thirsty for more. Because when you get a little bit of Jesus, he utterly satisfies your person, but he, 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 he makes you hungry for more. He satiates you and yet he gives you an insatiable hunger for him because there is an unending reservoir of blessing in the person of Jesus. It's unending. There's not enough. You can never exhaust who he is or what he has for you. And so you want more? Go take it. You have great strength. It's a person of the Holy Spirit. You want more? Go take it. You might have to clear out some trees. You might have to clear the spiritual landscape a little bit. You might have to get out of the way that which is separating you from more intimacy with the Lord. But get it out of the way. And are there Canaanites with big chariots in the valley? Don't worry about them. Remember chapter 11? The Israelites had already been up against iron chariots. The Lord had already given them that victory. Now they're worried about that? Don't worry about that. Our foe is already defeated. Take hold of life in the valley because the Christian life is full of valleys. It's got a few mountaintops and those are awesome. We love those. But the Christian life is full of valleys. Why so many valleys? We love to just stay on the mountaintop where we're just being blessed and it's peaceful and we're free from warfare and just experiencing intimacy with the Lord. That is a wonderful place to be. But if you're there, you can be sure there's a valley coming your way. Why so many valleys? Because in the valley, the fruit is grown. This is a Carpinteria Valley in which we're sitting right now. And it has some of the most fruitful uh, soil on the face of the earth. World famous for its flower growing and its growing of some produce. Some of the most fruitful soil on the face of the earth here in the Carpinteria Valley. But notice it's a valley. And the fruit is grown in the valley. The mountaintop is awesome. But if you go to the top of the mountains overlooking the ocean here, there's no fruit trees growing up there. They're all down in the valley. And the most profound fruit in our Christian life comes from those valley experiences where the Canaanites are with the big iron chariots, where God gives us the victory, where we are called to live by faith, where there's times where we're not even experiencing tangibly the presence of God anymore, and we're saying, God, are you there? And at that moment, you've got to walk in faith according to what he said. Moments where it seems like the wheels are just coming off the cart and everything's spinning out of control and the walls are crumbling around you and you've got to say, God, where are you in the midst of this? And by faith, you've got to believe that he's there and that he will see you through. It might not be today. It might not even be tomorrow, but your day shall come. 
The Lord is absolutely faithful and he's going to see you through. But we rejoice in tribulation, don't we? Knowing knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And what God wants to work in every single one of you who are his is great hope. But on the road to hope is proven character. And on the road to proven character is perseverance. And the road to perseverance begins with trials and tribulations. So don't try to get out of the valley as Ephraim did. Embrace the valley experience because God is all about the process. And if you'll get in the midst of the valley and say, God, what do you want to do? Help me to live by faith. He will build in you perseverance and proven character and hope that does not disappoint. And you will be richer in your relationship with Jesus for having been in the valley. Amen? Chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 1, we have something very interesting. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Previous to this, they were in Gilgal, which was the headquarters for Israel during their times of war and during the times of dividing the land up until this moment. And now Joshua has an interesting move as a leader of Israel. He takes everybody 20 miles to the northwest to a place called Shiloh. Shiloh was centrally located in the land of Canaan. It was right in the midst of all that God was doing. And what they did there was set up the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was a precursor to the temple. It was the tabernacle. It was a place where God told Israel, I will meet with you. The tent of meeting. When you go to this place, I will always be faithful to meet with you there. It was a place where the worship happened in Israel. It was a place where the sacrifices were given to the Lord. It is a place where the ark of God was. Between the wings of the cherub on the lid of that ark is where God manifests his Shekinah glory. His presence in the midst of Israel. And so when they would go to the tent of meeting, they were endeavoring in their hearts to meet with God. And Joshua is a leader here saying, we need to, at this moment in our history, meet with the Lord anew. We need to get the Lord in the center because he was a center when we came across the Jordan. Remember that? The ark was in the center. And he was in the center when we walked around the walls of Jericho. Remember that? The ark was in the center. But now we've gotten off track a little bit and we need to get centered again on the person of Jesus Christ. How did they get off track? Well, there's a little bit of grumbling and complaining happening in the land with Ephraim. The first bit of dissatisfaction with what they had had set in. Sure, they got more and that's the grace of God. But they were dissatisfied with what they had. Selfishness has come into the camp of Israel. And Joshua being a great leader knows when man gets selfish, man needs to talk to Jesus. When man gets self-centered, he needs to get Jesus in the center. And I want to tell you guys, I want to confess before you in all humility that I am a selfish man. There is not one area in my life where I don't have an enormous propensity to be extremely selfish. I can be very selfish in my recreation. I can be very selfish in my free time. I can be very selfish in my ministerial life. I can be very selfish in my marriage. I can be very selfish with my kids. I can be very selfish with you guys. Britt Merrick is a very selfish man. But there are times where I get with my Jesus and I put him at the center. And that helps me with my selfishness. It helps me to get off the throne and put him on the throne. And that's what Israel's doing right now. Whoa, whoa, self-centeredness has set in. We need to get with God. We need to put him in the center. So they go to the center of the land. They set up the tabernacle in the midst of Israel and they worship the Lord there in Shiloh and they just get God in the center again. 
Just came back from the men's retreat out at the islands. Got back at midnight and uh, the men are still over there. It's been an unbelievable time with those men. But there's a new believer over there. And he's just been a Christian for a few weeks. He got saved here at Reality at our first Thursday night service uh, a few weeks ago. And um, it's a trip that he got saved on Thursday night, you know, because Thursday night's kind of the holy roller night, you know what I mean? We're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and there's prophecies and laying on of hands for healing and all this stuff going on, you know what I mean? And there's a sweet little girl who comes here to the church, and she works at a grocery store in Santa Barbara where this guy's a facilities guy. And she's been witnessing to him, and she invited him to church on a Thursday night. Now, had she asked her pastor, her pastor would have been like, oh no, not Thursday night, you know, definitely maybe Sunday, or maybe wait till Easter, or you know what I mean, but not Thursday night, you know, but thank God she didn't ask me. She invited her co-worker to church on Thursday night, and he came, and I, I wasn't talking about the salvation message, I was talking about the gifts of the Spirit and getting crazy with the Holy Spirit. And this man gave his life to Jesus Christ that night. Now, it was one of those radical conversions. You know when somebody's countenance is changed? Just boom, changed by Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Wham, changed by Jesus Christ. It was one of those. And we baptized him last Sunday after church. And when he came out to the water, when he came out to the water uh, for the baptism, his name is Ben. He walked up, tall guy, good looking guy. He walks up, I go, hey Ben, what do you want us to pray for you? And he goes, pfft. I love Jesus, man. Just get me in the water. Just like that. Just the man is so on fire for the Lord. And so we're out at the islands and we're having this time of sharing because God is doing a deep work in our men out there. Ask him about it. God's doing a deep work. If someone came back and God didn't do a deep work, just slap them. God's doing a deep work. And we're having this sharing time and men were opening up and sharing gnarly stuff in their heart and, and, and this guy spoke up man he's only been a Christian a few weeks and he said this he said he raised his hand it was so cute he raised his hand and I said yes Ben and he goes <laughs> he goes Pastor Britt I know that I've been saved by Jesus Christ and I know I've been saved for eternity and that when I die I'm going to heaven but I also know that I need to be saved daily by my Jesus and he said, I'm the I'm I'm facilities guy at a grocery store in Santa Barbara. And I need to be saved right there in the midst of that from my daily trials. And so he says, you know what I do in the middle of the day? He says, I go into my janitorial closet and I shut the door behind me. And I lock it. I get down on my knees and I pray to my Jesus. This guy's a brand new Christian, man. He's got it. He, in the midst of his day, enthrones Jesus Christ in his life. In the midst of what's going on, he puts Jesus in the center. And I'm telling you what, he is living a victorious Christian life just a few weeks into it. And that's exactly what Joshua said needed to happen with the Israelites right here. Selfishness has set in, self-centeredness, so let's get the Lord in the middle. Now the last part of verse 1 says something cool. It says, and the land was subdued before them. That word subdue is the word chavash in Hebrew. It means to be in subjection, to be enslaved, to be overcome, to be put in bondage. I love it. The land was in subjection to them. The land was overcome before them. The land was enslaved. The land was in bondage. In other words, it was fully theirs. All they had to do was get it. It was totally theirs. All they had to do was get it. And I love the fact that previously they were enslaved. 
They were previously chavash when they were in Egypt. They were subdued. They were in subjection. They were enslaved. They were overcome. They were in bondage. And now they've been set free and the land is theirs for the taking. And that's a beautiful analogy for the Christian life. It is all there for the taking. Remember Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then remember 2 Peter 1.3? Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. They had everything that they needed. The land was just waiting for them to take. And every promise of God is yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have everything that we need according to the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. Now where it says true knowledge there in 2 Peter 1.3, that word in the Greek is epinosis. The normal word for knowledge is gnosis. This is epinosis. Here's what it means. Clear and exact knowledge. Experiential knowledge. Knowledge that requires participation on the part of the subject in the object. Meaning knowledge that was gained by rolling up your sleeves and diving into someone or something. Clear, exact, experiential, participatory, thorough knowledge. We have everything that we need for this life according to that sort of knowledge of Christ Jesus. That means that you can't be a Sunday Christian and experience everything in this life. You've got to be a wholehearted Christian. You've got to be a Christian that dives into the person of Jesus Christ. You've got to have your own spirituality. You've got to have some discipline in your life. You've got to dive into the person of Jesus and the Word of God and feast upon the bread of life and drink of the living waters for yourself. You can't listen to the preacher yell at you for your whole life. You've got to take responsibility over your spirituality or you will never experience everything that your King has purposed in His heart for you. And it was just laying there in front of them, ready for them to take. And something interesting was going on in verse 2. And there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to these sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? For some reason, these tribes were hesitating. And Joshua says to them, what are you doing? Why are you waiting? Why are you not pressing ahead in your life with God? Why are you not moving forward in your faith? Why are you not experiencing the victory? Why are you hesitating? And we're not told why they were hesitating. We're just told that they were. But let me conjecture for a moment. Perhaps they were like you and I, and they were afraid of change. You know, we're often afraid of change even when we know that change is going to be good because we like comfortable spaces. And what's weird about fallen humanity is we can be comfortable in the most perverted of spots. We can be comfortable in the most wrong areas. We can be comfortable in the worst places of hurt. And yet somehow they become comfortable to us. You might have some pet sin and it's been with you so long and you know Jesus Christ is saying, I want to set you free from that. But that's a place of comfort for you. And you know by faith that you have freedom in Jesus Christ and you're not going after it. Even though that change is good, you're remaining where you are. You're hesitating. It may be that you're coming from a place of tremendous hurt. You were abused previously. You were neglected. Whatever it was, 
You're coming from some place of hurt. And Jesus Christ, the healer, is saying, I want to heal you and set you free today. But that hurt was so close to home that it's become home for you. And it's become this sick place of comfort for you. And you don't know how to let it go. And you don't know how to live without that hurt anymore. Well, I'm telling you what, Jesus Christ is a better way for you. The land of blessing and fullness and health and healing is subdued before you. All you've got to do is lay hold of it. And yet they hesitated. We're often afraid of change even when we know it's good change because our hearts are desperately wicked and full of deceit and they become comfortable in perverted places. Don't hesitate in what the Lord has for you. Don't delay in moving forward in what God has ordained for you. For some strange reason, they delayed at this juncture and Joshua says, get on it. Don't wait one minute longer. Now, in verses 4 through 9, they send 21 spies, in, not spies, excuse me, 21 surveyors into the land to take a topographical survey of the rest of the land. And then those spies come back in verse 9. So the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities and seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua at the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land of the sons of Israel according to their divisions. Now we mentioned this last week. And I promised that when we got to chapter 18, I would give you a fuller explanation. I just didn't know we get to chapter 18 this soon. But needless to say, they cast lots to divide up the land. It was a lottery system of sorts. God told them to do it this way. It's like drawing names from a hat or rolling the dice or drawing straws, whatever it is. It was a lottery system, however they did it. We're not exactly sure how they did it. There's some speculation. We won't trouble ourselves with the details. But it was some sort of lottery system by which they determined the borders, perhaps drawing borders from one uh, little container and then the names of the tribes from another. But though it seemed random, It wasn't left to chance. It was a method by which God exercised his sovereignty for them. It says in Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord wanted to be sovereign over the division of the land. Now, isn't that nice of the Lord? Because we know the Israelites by now. And can you imagine the bickering and the political wrangling and the warring that would have taken place if they had to negotiate the borders of the land? It's happening today. Can you imagine if they had to do that for themselves? It would have been seven more years of war, civil war this time. The Lord was so kind to say, I will decide the boundaries for you. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways that God exercises sovereignty in the, his people's decision-making was by to cast lots. We see it in Leviticus 16. We see it in Nehemiah 10, Esther 3, Jonah 1. It was common in the Old Testament. We even see it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, Judas is out of the picture as one of the 12 disciples, and they've got to replace him. They say a prayer, and they cast the lot, and Matthias is chosen. And that was subject to the sovereignty of God. But... After Acts chapter 1, we never see the casting of lots in Scripture again. Why is that? Well, that's because of what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And now every one of God's people has a Holy Spirit indwelling them. That was not the case in the Old Testament. And now the way that God exercised His sovereignty in our decision making is number one, by the Spirit of God in us. Number two, by the word of God available to us. And number three, by the peace of God ruling. 
We have those three things by which God is sovereign in our decision making. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the peace of God. Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. And then it says in Romans 8:14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So the Holy Spirit guides us, instructs us, reveals, and leads. And then the word of God, thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path, Psalm 119. And Colossians 3:16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And then we have the peace of God. Colossians 3:15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, as New Testament Christians, after Acts chapter 1, we don't cast lots anymore. That's not how God's sovereignty is exercised in our lives. We have the same principle of leaving the decision up to God. Same principle. Same exact principle. I'm going to leave the decision up to God, but a different methodology by which we discern the will of God. It's not the casting of lots, though I know you wish it were. It's more relational now, you understand. It's not the casting of lots. It is now relational. It's by engaging with a person of the Holy Spirit. It's by engaging with the Word of God, and it's by paying attention to the peace of God that abides in the heart of every Christian. And when it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, that word rule means to act as an umpire who would cry about a situation or a decision or direction, either fair or foul. And we all have a measure of peace given to us by Jesus Christ as Christians. And if you're going in the right direction and it lines up with the word of God and you're seeking to follow the spirit of God and that peace remains, you're probably going in the right way. But if you're going in a direction and there's a disturbance in your peace, brother, don't go there. Because the word of God says, let the peace of God rule, act as umpire in your heart. Don't look when you're going in the right way for new peace. I used to think that. Oh, if I make the right decision, there's going to be new peace. No, I already have peace in Jesus Christ. I already have peace. If I'm going in the right direction, it lines up with the word of God and is according to the leading of the spirit of God, my peace remains. When I'm going in the wrong direction without exception, there's always a disturbance in that peace, however it might be manifest. And I've learned in my short little life not to go against the peace, man. I'll tell you what. Every time I felt like, oh, there's just a little check in my spirit, just that little, uh, and I try to blow it off, I get myself in trouble. And so we don't need to cast lots. Same goal, let the Lord decide. Different methodology, much more relational. The peace of God, the word of God, and the spirit of God. And then, in the rest of chapter 18, we have the portion of the land that fell to Benjamin, and it's on the map. Now, watch this. Chapter 19. Verses 1 through 9, that's the territory given to Simeon on the map. Verses 10 through 16, the territory given to Zebulun on the map. 17 through 23, Issachar on the map. 24 through 31, Asher, look at the map. Verses 32 through 39, the territory to Naphtali. God bless him, look at it on the map. And verses 40 through 48, the territory that went to Dan. Both the territory that was allotted to them and the territory in the north that they just really liked and went and took by force which is totally cool. And when we go to Israel in September, we will go to that area and we'll talk about that story and it's really neat. Now look at verse 49. Chapter 19, verse 49. This is sweet. 
When they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. They just gave him a whole bunch. He was a member of tribe. He could have gone and had his little part with the rest of the tribe, but they were just appreciative of his leadership. And so they gave him a bunch of land. Verse 50. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. Man, the cat's about 110 at this time. And he's been a great military commander. He's been a great encourager. He's been a great listener to the Lord. He's been a wonderful administrator. And now he's a builder. And he's building in the place that God called him to as an old man. I think it's beautiful. And then verse 51. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by Lot and Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. And now we have a map in front of you that has all the various divisions and different colors of the tribes. And you can see the spoils of victory. It was a glorious day in Israel. They've had 400 years of slavery, 38 of wandering and seven of war. And now they're going to settle down and have babies. Now they're going to build their houses. They're going to cultivate the land. They're going to raise their livestock and they're going to enjoy the Lord for a little while in the good place that he brought them to by his faithfulness. Now I want you to see what the Lord does in chapter 20. We're not going to read a single verse, but I just want to tell you about chapter 20. God establishes some places called cities of refuge in Israel. And they're very important. They're mentioned four times in the Old Testament, and they're described in a lot of detail. I want you to look at the passages later. It's here in Joshua 20, but it's also in Exodus 21, Numbers 35, and Deuteronomy 19. And I want you to go there later on and just read about the cities of refuge. Basically, here's what was happening. In that day, blood vengeance was the norm. And sometimes somebody committed manslaughter, meaning they killed somebody, but it was not premeditated. It wasn't murder. It was an accident. There was no malintent. There was no premeditation. But, you know, they're out there with the sickle or whatever, and they're like, you know, cutting down the wheat, and whoa, cut that guy's head off. Oh, no. And the guy dies. Manslaughter. They blew it. They killed this guy. They didn't mean to. It was an accident. But according to the customs of the time and the land in which they lived, that dead man's nearest kin would come and murder you next. Blood vengeance. That's just the way that it worked. And so what God does now that the land is settled, now that they're going to begin to establish Israeli society in the land, is he seeks to break the cycle of violence. He says, this is a way that you ancient people have lived. This is a norm for you ancient people. But now as I'm establishing your society, I want to break the cycle of violence. And so he establishes these six cities in Israel, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west, where if someone commits manslaughter, accidentally kills somebody, they can go to that city and they're safe now from the blood avenger. They have protection in that city and they were all Levitical cities, so they were the priests to minister to them. They would go there and there they would have refuge. And God is teaching these ancient people about breaking the cycle of violence and the sanctity of human life. He's teaching them. Breaking the violence and for them to understand the sanctity 
of human life. And he establishes a place of refuge for people that made a mistake. Now, every church in the community ought to be the same thing. A little city of refuge. A place where people can come who've made mistakes. Where they can learn about the God who breaks the cycle of violence. Where they can learn about the sanctity of life and how God values our lives. So much so that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Where they could come and receive Levitical instructions, so to speak. Where they can come and be protected from the blood avenger. A place of refuge is what the church ought to be. And we have a beautiful picture of that in chapter 20. Now the last chapter, chapter 21. Very simply, it's this. Chapter 21 is the crowning act of the distribution of the land. It's the Levites receiving their cities and the pasture lands. Remember, they didn't get their own allotment of land. Their portion was the Lord, but they needed somewhere to live. And so the Lord gave them these cities throughout the 12 tribes' inheritances. And they were to live in these cities. And what's really neat about the way that the Lord distributed um, the Levites is that nobody then in Israel was more than 10 miles away from one of the Levitical cities. That's important, remember, because Israel now needed to learn the word of God as it was given to Moses. And the Levites were entrusted with instructing Israel. Moses told them in Deuteronomy 33.10, you shall teach God's ordinances to Jacob and his law to Israel. And so they were to teach the rest of Israel about who God is and how God works. And so God distributed them throughout the land. And they had a tremendous task. Because remember, do you remember that their success in the land would depend upon greatly their adherence to the word of God? That's what it said way back in Joshua 1, verses 6 through 9, where the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to the right or to the left of it so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So now that they're in the land, the Lord does two wonderful things. He establishes places of refuge, thereby breaking the cycle of violence, teaching them about the sanctity of life, and then he distributes amongst the people teachers of the word of God that they might learn more about their Lord, that they might be instructed in who he is and how he works, and so fall more in love with him. God here is establishing a society in the midst of fulfilling his promises, and he's so wise in the way that he does it. And we finish by reading these three verses, verse 43 of Joshua 21. Verse 43, Joshua 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and no one of all the enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Last verse. 
Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, but all of them came to pass. That's glorious. That's glorious. God was absolutely faithful to every single word. And they had hard times and big enemies and big battles. But God was absolutely faithful to them then. And he'll be absolutely faithful to you now. Amen. Amen. Lord, we just thank you so much for this truth. And Lord, we ask that you would increase faith in our midst now to believe you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that you're faithful even when we're faithless. Lord, we thank you that the thrust of the Bible is not what we do, but what you've done for us. Not how good we are, but how great you are, Lord. And you've accomplished great things by delivering us from the domain of darkness and bringing us into the life of promise. And Lord, we just ask that you build an expectation in us of the same thing. That not one of the good promises which you make to us will fail, but all will come to pass. We've got so many more promises now than Israel had then. It's glorious, Lord. Thank you that they're all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us to drive out the Canaanites and the Jebusites, those unauthorized inhabitants in the landscape of our Christianity, those minions of the enemy trying to hold ground. Oh, Lord, help us to get the victory. Help us to drive them out. Lord, help us to clear the hill country that we might lay hold of all that you would give us. Help us to see the fullness of the fruit that is born in the valley, Lord. Help us not to fear, but to walk according to faith. Lord, we're weak. We're often weary. We're very silly. We're very given to distractions and the things of the flesh. Lord, help your people. Help us like you helped Israel take the land. Help your people, God. If you guys need help today, the prayer team is up here. They're very mighty in prayer. Be a good day to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and get on your face on the carpets. Communion is here by which we can remember the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Let's press in.